So my intention for tonight is to see if we can shift our view just a little bit more than where we are right now in the way that we relate to our experience. And there's always room for more shifting around our relationship to what we're experiencing in ourselves. So I want to see if we can look at this a little bit more deeply together. In the loving-kindness practice, there's a very beautiful reflection that we can do to help us connect more with our heart. And it's the reflection that all beings want to be happy. We can say sometimes to ourselves, just as I want to be happy, all beings want to be happy. Because we can really connect with ourselves. We know that in ourselves, that place where we want that. We especially those of us who have come along on the spiritual path, people who are here, you who are here tonight, we know that we want this. We can feel this in our being, in our heart. And yet what the Buddha says is that even though all beings want to be happy, we don't really know where to look. It's like we don't, we don't out of our own confusion, we lose our way. We, we, it, it isn't so clear, that seems to be our human predicament, that it's not so clear how to find that route to happiness. So we fumble around a lot. We go, a lot, we go down a lot of roads that wind up to be kind of dead ends. You know, we have to turn around and come back. We, we lose our way. So the Buddha, knowing that, has given us a map, given us a path to follow, to help us, to guide us out of our confusion, really, so that we can, through the practices and through the teachings, we can begin to wake up, essentially wake up to our own heart, awakening the heart, waking up to our own heart, to our own being, so that we know where and what we can rely on that is going to point us in the right direction. Because when we rely on our thinking minds, our conceptual framework that was constructed since the time we were born, particularly those first five years of our development, when we rely on that structure, which is an ego structure, the sense of our self, how we know ourselves, we can easily get misled because we have to go to a different location, we can say, use that metaphor, location, a different place within our being to know what we can listen to, what we can rely on. And so the practices that we're doing here is helping us to see if we can let go a little bit of that way that we're perceiving, the way that we think about things, the way that we view things, so that we can kind of shake that up a bit so possibly we can see in a different way, we can we can feel in a different way, which then will begin to shift our perception and our view. Something has to change. Because if, for most of us, if we keep going in that direction that we've been going, we wind up experiencing pain and suffering. And when we go in a direction that is not supporting those conditions of pain, we know that too. And we have a sense, ah, yeah, that's right. That's right, I, I, mean, I need to be going more in that direction. For example, you are here. That, this, I think, was a good direction to go in. You know, when that thought arose, I think I'll go on a retreat at IMS this year. This happens, happens to be this particular retreat. It was a good thought to follow. Because it's likely 
that what you're doing here is really going to support this waking up to something that you can rely on within yourself. And the Buddha really didn't want us to rely on him. He wanted us to be independent, independent and free. We've heard the phrase the Buddha said, to be a lamp unto yourself, be a light unto yourself. And don't listen to anything I say, said the Buddha. In the same way, we follow, us teachers follow in that same tradition, don't listen to anything that we say. Look for yourself. Look within your own mind. Look within your own heart to find out if it's true. If the teachings, if these uh, practices resonate for you, listen, listen deeply within yourself because that's, what you need to do so that you can feel more, sense more into what is right, what is true for you. Because there is that within us that will point us to the truth in the true way. There's a discourse, uh, Eugene was talking last night about some of the discourses, and there's a, one particular discourse in one of the texts called The Greater Discourse on Ways of Undertaking Things. And the Buddha, in, in his many, many discourses that we have available to us, really have quite useful teachings for us, very practical teachings for us, even though they were given 2,500 years ago when the Buddha walked this land, they're as relevant today as they were then. There's this, in this sutta, he he starts off, um, talking about, explaining a little bit about where, how our pain arises, how our confusion arises. And he says, uh, the Buddha states a wish that people have, and this is, present in 2,500 years ago, um, that goes like this. If only unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things would diminish, and wished for, desired, agreeable things would increase, then I'd be happy, right? (laughs) In other words, if only things I don't want would go away, and I could get what I really want more often, you know, then I'd be happy. And I, I, I remember when I read this, I thought, you know, this is amazing that it's exactly, people were thinking exactly the same way as we're thinking now. You know, we want things to be agreeable. We don't want things to be disagreeable. And that's where we find ourselves getting habituated in trying to manipulate and control our experience so that it'll be more agreeable. But the difficulty is that in order to make things more agreeable or disagreeable, make things more agreeable, we're not trying to make things more disagreeable, but to make things more agreeable, usually the criteria that we use for that is how it feels. You know, that if we feel good, we want to increase that. And if we don't feel good, we want to change that. You know, we want to try to alter that experience. And so very often we're involved in evaluating how we're feeling. And then that's determining our choice of action. I, I, I was thinking today, you know, when we were doing the standing meditation outside, I mean, I knew it was a little bit of a risk because, <laughs> because there have, you know, there are increasingly more and more bugs out there. But, um, you know, I thought, okay, let's give it a try. I went out and tested it for a few minutes, you know, beforehand just to see how bad they were, and it didn't seem so bad. You know, but going out there and standing for you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so, I could see that it was pretty disagreeable for a lot of, for some people. 
you know, then I, you know, I looked across the way, and because of the way the sun was hitting, I could see that there were a few people who were getting more of the, the flies than other people. I didn't know why that was. I thought that was rather interesting. <laughs> Something about karma, I don't know. But, but, <laughs> but I thought, okay, you know, here's an example of, you know, having, you know, being in a situation that may not be so agreeable, but is there a way to find something in that experience that actually may be worthwhile and that may lead on to more happiness in the future? In other words, if I stand here and I just really feel into my experience and I know that there's some aspect that's not very, very pleasant, perhaps as I stand here and just feel into my experience, I can learn how to increase my tolerance for this disagreeable aspect rather than just acting on impulse to leave. And not that I didn't, I didn't really see anybody do that, but I'm using it as an example of how even though a situation can maybe seem not so agreeable in the moment, in the present, maybe there's something that we know in our heart, in our being, that if I stay here, if I stay here not only in the situation, but I actually stay here with myself and stay connected and mindful and present with myself, maybe there's something agreeable that will come in the future. And there's something that we can connect with inside that, that it feels right. It's just something that feels right. It's not coming from an idea of what feels good or doesn't feel good, because if we, if we move from the idea, why do it? You know, what's the point? You know, why hang out when something doesn't feel good or where it doesn't, you know, just split? You know, that's kind of the old conditioned way of thinking about things. But we're doing something different here. We're saying there's the possibility that if we feel into and stay with something that is disagreeable, maybe something's going to come of that that is going to actually pay off and will be quite agreeable (laughs) in the future, lead to some level of of ease, of happiness, of inner peace, of increasing capacity to be able to be with life in all of its different forms and manifestations. So we're... We need to go beyond the feeling. In this practice, I don't think we can use the feeling as our criteria. That's the way that we are conditioned, what we like, what we don't like, and then the impulse to act on that so that we can go after more and more of what we like. But I think that's the treadmill You know, the Buddha talks about that. That's the treadmill. It's called the wheel of samsara. You know, it just keeps us moving more and more towards suffering. It doesn't really seem to release us. It's not necessarily the path to release, the path to transformation. So we we may need to get out of this duality of what feels good or what feels bad, I think there's also a belief in there as well that if I'm not feeling good, then I must be doing something wrong. Has that come up? If, if my experience doesn't feel good, if my meditation doesn't feel good, or my walking experiences, then I must be doing something wrong, and I have to figure out how to do it right so that I'll feel better. I can remember that way of thinking for so many years of my practice. The way that I would personalize my experience as if it was my fault, you know, that because it wasn't feeling good, it was my fault, and that there is some kind, there is a way. The Buddha knew the way, you know, the teachers know the way. How come I don't know the way? And then I would judge myself or get down on myself, criticize myself because I wasn't doing it right or I couldn't figure it out. But it's so interesting as we begin to just shift that view a little bit and, 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 and when we reflect that it actually may not be about how we're feeling. 
whether we're doing it right or whether we're doing it wrong. I'm, I don't think that's the criteria that we can use. So this right, wrong, good, bad, this duality that we often find ourselves in and then judge ourselves and, and, and try to um, manipulate our experience based on these ideas, these conditioned ideas that actually aren't going to be very supportive as we walk this path. In fact, we, it'll just be another trap. And we'll find ourselves going round and round trying to figure it out. Good, bad, right, wrong. There's no way out of that. Because what we're pointing to, what we're practicing, has nothing to do with that level of right and wrong, which comes through the mind, which comes through a sense of how it feels. This is one of my favorite poems from Rumi, the great Sufi poet, Out beyond our ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When we lay down in that grass, even our ideas of you and me fade away. When we lay down in that grass, all duality fades away. Even you and me, we are just there. We're just there with our experience in its totality, just the way it is. So how do we sense into this knowing if we can't rely on our feeling, we can't rely on our thoughts, our ideas of what's right and wrong, where can we go? And, you know, I think for some of us, you know, we've gotten to the point where we know that we can't rely on our mind. You know, we can't keep walking down the road that our mind is telling us to walk down. So there's something, but yet something, we know that we have to listen to something else. But we don't know where to go. We don't know what that is. So we can feel a little lost sometimes. Even that could lead to some sense of confusion. And yet we may know in our heart that it's at least better (laughs) than where we were. You know, there's some sense that we're at least getting a little closer to what might be true. We just can't go out in the same way that we went out before. So we just keep looking, we keep our eyes open, we keep our ears open, we keep our heart open, we keep listening to other people, to ourselves. What, where, what do I do now? Where do I go now? And this is a good thing to do because if we keep going out in the same way, we know what that's going to lead to. So we're sensing in, we're sensing into ourselves, we know there has to be something else, and as we sense in, we start to touch something within our own being, within our own heart. The the mind, this thinking mind, this conceptual mind that we usually rely on, it starts to break up, and as it breaks up and we start to feel more into our body, into our being, we more easily then can access our heart. We can touch our heart. Heart meaning, heart is such a, you know, it's an interesting word that doesn't have a very definite uh, uh, definition, translation. The word chitta, you know, is the word from Sanskrit, and it's the, the mind, the conceptual mind breaks up, and in a way, my experience is that the mind actually drops from this place of being in my head. It drops down, and it feels like it drops down into my heart. So that rather than leading from my mind, which can sometimes actually feel like I'm being pulled or, you know, the energy can feel so strong that this part of my body is moving rather than 
moving from my center. But as my, that I'm not so dependent on my thinking mind, something seems to drop down into my being. So I'm actually leading more with my, with my torso, which includes my heart, which includes my solar plexus, which includes my belly. Which, which gives me the sense that I have more access to my being, to the wholeness of my being. Because this is going to be pretty, li- I know it's pretty limiting. <laughs> this construction is a very limited view. I know that now. So this sense of the dropping, this chitta, this, the, the dropping of the, of the mind into the heart, heart-mind, gives me a sense of now I'm, I'm, I can sense into something that's more true. Even though I may not understand it, it doesn't give me the same kind of uh, pathway of information that I'm used to. It's a little more mysterious, a little more shady, you know, more amorphous, but yet there's something that I feel I'm beginning to sense into. And so when we know we can't go down that same road and we start coming back into ourselves and start to keep our eyes and our ears open and our body open and our senses open, we're getting closer to something we can really depend on. So the Buddha says, rather than asking what's right and what's wrong in that duality, in that polarity, what's good, what's bad. We're really changing the question, and the question becomes one of, is what I am thinking or doing right now leading me closer to freedom, to happiness, to contentment? Or is what I'm thinking and doing right now leading me more into confusion, suffering, and pain? And and that becomes the predominant question. That question is just rampant through the discourses of the Buddha. Not whether it's right or wrong from from a whole moralistic or cultural model, but from somewhere much deeper inside of us, in our being. Is what I'm thinking and doing right now helpful? Is it useful? Useful for what? Not useful so that I'll feel better, I'll like myself more, you know, I'll be happier in the present moment with what's happening. But is it helpful for liberation? For for deep awakening? And I trust that if you ask yourself that question, you will get a response. You will get some kind of response. It may be an energetic response, a physical response, emotional response. It may even be a mental response of yes, no, or I don't know, or I'm not sure right now. You know, somewhere in there. You know, it's like, um, it's like, it's like we've, we start to access something that feels like a truth compass within ourselves. Almost like, you know, like a, some kind of uh, a, a, a rod. What do you call those divining rods where, you know, you, you look for water? You know, yeah, some kind of a, a compass in ourselves. We begin to, to sense, sense in. Is this, is this helpful or is this not helpful? And, you know, we know. You know, I mean, we try to kid ourselves. You know, we try to play games with ourselves, but we know, don't we? (laughs) You know? And the thing is that the more honest we are with ourselves, the more we can't get away with things. And then isn't it frustrating? It's like, darn, I can't do that anymore. (laughs) You know, I could get away with that for so long, and now I can't get away with it anymore. And it was so fun. It was so pleasurable. You know, whatever that thing is, you know, whether it's just something we love that you know makes us made us feel real good, or whether it's some kind of addiction, you know, that brought a lot, of, brought brings out brought about a lot of pain in the in the long run, but in the moment, you know, makes us feel great. 
for whatever reason, drugs, alcohol, you know, sugar addictions, gambling, I mean, whatever our thing is. But then we start to wake up. We start to wake up and we just can't do the same things anymore. Something starts to turn around. Instead of being able to go out, out, out in the same way that we've gone out, we start coming back, back, backtracking. And where we go back to is here, back into ourselves, back into our being, sensing into the truth. What's the truth? What's, what do I really need to do now? If I'm really honest with myself, if I'm really truthful with myself, what's really going to help me? And the thing is that it doesn't look any particular way. What's going to help us could look all different kinds of ways. You know, like Eugene was saying, I think, this morning about sleepiness. You know, sleepiness sometimes gets a real bad rap in meditation. You know, and yet Eugene said this morning, I encourage people to sleep on the first couple of days. I thought that was rather bold, you know. But, you know, it's the truth. Because, because for some people, sleepiness is exactly, sleepiness is, a, is a, a message from the intelligence of the body that says you need to rest. You need to slow down. You need to take care of yourself. You've been going too fast. You know you're 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 moving beyond your capacity of your own uh, uh, of your body of your of your limitation. Just slow down. Take some time. And yet, it's not always the 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 best thing, the most useful thing, the most helpful thing for our awakening. You know, it can also we can also fall into a kind of a habit a habitual tendency of just being kind of, you know, tired and somewhat dull and sleepy and, you know, in the, in the, in the uh, grid of the five difficult mind states that the Buddha talks about specifically, which are sometimes called the five hindrances, you know, slo- uh, sleepiness is called sloth and torpor. That's the way it's translated, sloth and torpor. It's fun to say. Because you can, you can really feel that energy of, you know, you just want to fall asleep hearing it. You know? <laughs> so sometimes we really need to examine. Well, I think usually, almost always, we need to examine what's happening when sleepiness arises because, because that's the kind of inner listening that's required for us to know how to respond to what's happening in any given moment. Which, how do I need to move with this experience right now? I can go one way, which in this case is to my room and to my bed, or I can go out and do a fast walk. You know, what, how do I need to respond to this right now? What's the best thing as I really deeply listen in to my being right now? In this present immediate moment, what's the appropriate response for my awakening, for my liberation? And as I say, sometimes we may not know, and sometimes we may go, you know, go lie down. I'm so tired. I can remember times on retreats where I was so tired, I didn't even think I could get up to walk to my room. And then I'd go, I have to go take a, take a rest. I'd go to my room and lie down. I'd be wide awake. You know, and so sometimes we have to do that. And then, okay, this moment, it's changed. (laughs) This moment, there's a different response needed. And so the listening and the attending, the mindfulness, is moment to moment to moment. Because our experience is always changing. Have you noticed? I mean, even like that, you know, just like we're so tired one minute that we can't get up, and the next, like, five minutes we're just like... I mean, this happens for a lot of people at night when you go, go to lie down to go to sleep, you know, after a long day of practice. You go to lie down, you really, really, really feel tired, but when you lie down, your mind is racing. You know, it just has all this energy. Maybe your body's tired, but your mind is really awake. Like, okay, what do I do with that? 
and so so there so there isn't really a right way there's not a right response there's not a right recipe it's like as i really feel into my experience really sense into my experience wholeheartedly and listen in there is there is a, a kind of in, i call it an intelligence there's many words that we can call that inner knowing that inner wisdom that reveals uh, uh, and, and guides us along the way. But there, I call it a kind of intelligence that is there for us, that we, we are waking up to by turning our attention inwardly and sensing in to see what's there. What is this? What is this reality that I am? What, what is this existence that I live in? Who, who am I? What is this consciousness? What is heart? What is this being? Is there an intelligence? Is there something about this being that I am that I can rely on, that I can depend on, that is not just my conceptual framework, my, the structure of my self, that how, how I know myself to be? So, the, so the, the great teachers tell us there is. The, the great masters, uh, uh, particularly the Buddha, says, yes, you can. In fact, it, this is your Buddha nature. You are, you are Buddha nature. And that is the only thing that you can depend on. The only way to find independence and freedom is to know this. So we are turning inward. We're turning inward. And as we do, coming back to those five difficult um, mind states that the Buddha talked about, we we encounter when we first come to um, practice, when we first turn inward in our meditation, in retreat, whatever it is, we encounter these five difficult uh, mind states. They're categorized in this way. I think Eugene mentioned them this morning. You know, we find ourselves caught in the wanting mind. Wanting. Wanting an agreeable experience, saying it in a simple way. You know, and then the opposite um, uh, mind state, which is the, the aversion or the not wanting mind. It's the second difficult mind state. You know, we, 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 we don't want disagreeable experiences, so we're getting, we want to get rid of those. And there's many, many degrees of the way that mind state manifests there is the third uh, of the uh, mind state of the sleepiness, of the sloth and torpor. The fourth one is the opposite energy of the, of the sleepiness, which is the restlessness, the heightened energy, the, the agitation and worry that arises inside. And then the fifth one being doubt, skeptical doubt. We start doubting ourselves, doubting, doubting our capacity, doubting... Uh, the teachers doubting the path, the practice doubting the Buddha, you know, whatever it is. Now, even in these five difficult mind states, which are called hindrances, they're only hindrances when we're not seeing clearly. They're only hindrances when we are in a kind of resistance towards these mind states. As we start to shift our view and start to, uh, we we are more able to accommodate our experience in any way that it's unfolding, any way that it's manifesting, we learn even how to be with these difficulties. We learn how to be able to open to these strong forces of mind that without understanding 
can really throw us off and we can get caught, we can get identified and off track. We can get thrown off track again. So as we start to come more fully into our experience, to embody what's happening, to feel and sense into our experience, we can even feel the energy of wanting as it's a manifesting. Not making it bad, not making it wrong, but rather as we open to it, it's like, oh, this is interesting. Let me see if I can find out something about this. And it's not through being analytical or trying to figure it out or trying to understand it through our mind, but through the direct knowing of our awareness itself, the direct light of our awareness. It's like putting ourselves under a microscope with our awareness. That awareness, that non-conceptual awareness, an awareness that is not necessarily a thinking awareness, an awareness that can be quite free of any language, of any words, of any uh, concept at all, just the simple knowing like when I look at, walk outside, and I'm, these beautiful tulips are greeting us for this retreat. I mean, we're so lucky. You know, tulips don't last very long, but they're all out, just in our, you know, celebrating with us this arrival of spring and the arrival of our own awakening. And we go out, you know, and when we look at the tulips, is there anything that we have to think about? looking at the tulips. It's more we go out and we just embrace them with our consciousness, with our presence, with our awareness, just pure, direct knowing of that experience. For most of us, I would imagine it's rather agreeable, you know, Colors are nice, the textures, you know, the whole kind of uplifting kind of sense of them coming out of the ground only like a few, uh, maybe a week or so ago. That whole sense of celebration, you know, my sense is that that's more of what we intuit when we encounter them. But it doesn't require much thinking about it. You know, the interesting thing is that as we encounter them, more of what arises is maybe more of a sense of the poetic you know, we start to draw on something within ourselves which feels much more uh, kind of um, artistic as we come into that relationship. Because what can you say? You know, what, what can you do when you're encountering that? So it's a different kind of knowing. It's a different kind of relating. And, and what we're encouraging and what we're practicing here is can we do the same thing when we encounter our difficulties? When we count, encounter these strong forces of greed or, or wanting in the mind or these strong forces of anger and ill will and hate in the mind or, you know, very strong forces of sleepiness, restlessness and, and self-doubt or critical doubt is there a possibility that we can welcome the arrival of these mind states and emotions so that we can come into relationship in a kind way, in a, in a caring way, in an inviting way, so that we can get to know what's going on. We can start to understand so, so that we can learn, we can grow, we can develop into all that we are, all that we can be, rather than our usual strategies of wanting to push away that which is not agreeable and to hold on to that which is agreeable. This is the dilemma. This is the predicament that we find ourselves in as human beings. It's a human predicament. It's not personal. (laughs) That's what's so wonderful about the Buddhist teachings. They're universal teachings. 
We as human beings, for some reason, and we're, not, we're supposed to not ask how it all got started this way. Buddha says if you ask, you'll go crazy trying to figure it out. But somehow we get caught in this wanting, not wanting, pushing, pulling, liking, not liking, and we find ourselves just caught in this very difficult dilemma. So we're trying to break that to see if there is another way, to see if we can drop, kind of settle into what's happening. And it's very hard. Sometimes for some of us here, I already know that a lot of people are going through very difficult things. And to, you know, to say, oh, just you know, open to it or settle into it or be with it, it's like you know, part of us could say, what? Are you crazy? You know, I can't even begin to even contemplate that possibility. So the invitation is to see if we can do this very, very gently, very slowly, very patiently, and with a tremendous amount of care, respect, compassion for where we find ourselves, here and now. And then the next moment, where we find ourselves, here and now. It's always changing. And so we always have another opportunity. If we didn't do so well in the last moment, we have another moment, we'll always, and we'll have another opportunity to encounter something difficult. That seems to be the way it is all along the path, no matter how evolved we get. There's always the next difficulty. There's always the next very seductive thing in front of us that we want to try to possess in some way. We always have another chance. So little by little, step by step, we just see, can I open to what's here on my plate? And if I can't, that's what's happening. Can I let that be okay, too? I can't open to this right now. That's okay, too. All right? Let's be with that. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. It's, it's, it, in a way, this is it's kind of an ex, experiment. We're just finding out if we can do this or not, this path of awakening, this path of opening, the, the, the path of opening our heart. You know, it's, it's, we're just all trying it together because it's not easy. I think I'll read you this. So I have a couple. I have a couple of. Which one do I want to read you? I like this. I like this story from Ajahn Sumedho. Um, Ajahn Sumedho is the the abbot of the Amavati Monastery in England, and he's a he's actually a Canadian who ordained. Um, very long time ago, 35 years or so ago, amazing, wonderful man who's an elder to most all of us and somebody we dearly love. He tells wonderful stories about his own path. And I want to read this particular one as a way of just his own kind of reflection and opening. Sometimes insight, this is Ajahn Sumedho, sometimes insight arises at the most unexpected times. This happened to me while living at Wat Pa Pong, The northwestern part of Thailand is not the most beautiful or desirable place in the world with its scrubby forests and flat plain. It also gets extremely hot during the hot season. We'd have to go out in the heat of the mid-afternoon before each of the observance days and sweep the leaves off the paths. There were vast areas to sweep. We would spend the whole afternoon in the hot sun sweating and sweeping the leaves into piles with crude brooms. This was one of our duties. I didn't like doing this. I'd think, I don't want to do this. 
I didn't come here to sweep the leaves off the ground. I came here to get enlightened, and instead they have me sweeping leaves off the ground. Besides, it's hot, and I have fair skin. I might get skin cancer for being out here in the hot climate. I was standing out there one afternoon feeling really miserable, thinking, why am I, what am I doing here? Why did I come here? Why am I staying here? There I stood with my long, crude broom and absolutely no energy, feeling sorry for myself and hating everything. Then Ajahn Shah, the great Thai master, came up, smiled at me and said, Wat Pa Pong is a lot of suffering, isn't it? And walked away. So I thought, why did he say that? And and actually, you know, it's not all that bad. He got me to contemplate, is sweeping the leaves really that unpleasant? No, it's not. It's kind of a neutral thing. You sweep the leaves, and it's neither here nor there. Is sweating all that terrible? Is it really a miserable, humiliating experience? Is it really as bad as I'm pretending it is? No, sweating is all right. It's a perfectly natural thing to be doing. And I don't have skin cancer, and the people at Wat Pong are very nice. The teacher is a very kind, wise man. The monks have treated me well. The lay people come and give me food to eat. And what am I complaining about? Reflecting upon the actual experience of being there, I thought, I'm all right. People respect me. I'm treated well. I'm being taught by pleasant people in a very pleasant country. There's nothing really wrong with anything except me. I'm making a problem out of it because I don't want to sweat, and I don't want to sweep the leaves. Then I had a very clear insight. I suddenly perceived something in me which was always complaining and criticizing and which was preventing me from ever giving myself to anything or offering myself to any situation. And in in the end of this other story which follows, he just says, there was no problem after that. It felt really good. That nasty thing in me had stopped. So we never know, you know, what's going to kind of shift that perception And we just sort of get that, oh, yeah, you know, it's just the way I've been thinking. It's just the way I've been perceiving. And actually, I could look at the whole thing a lot differently. And maybe, really, things aren't that bad. So, little by little, little by little, And the funny thing is that actually even it can seem like things are really, really bad, and maybe in some way they are. And I know there's a few people in here who things are really bad in sort of the scheme of things. But yet, even so, we might be able to, as we start to go into ourselves, touch a place, where things really aren't so bad. We may begin to really know that in a very profound way, in a way that no matter what's happening in my body, in people that I love, or situations around me, there's a place I know that I'm okay, and that things are okay. And then we start to touch something that gets closer to our true nature, our Buddha nature, the truth of who we are in this existence that really isn't touched by any condition, inner or outer, isn't bothered but in some ways is free and protected, safe, safe and protected. And we know it. We know it.
So I'm going to end with a poem. Another one of my favorite poems that I'm, I bet probably many people have heard. It's a Mary Oliver poem. It's called Wild Geese. And it's just as even the first line is great. She says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I'll tell you mine. Meanwhile, the earth goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscape, over the prairies, the mountains, and the tall trees. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clear blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the earth calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, inviting you to take your place in the family of things. Let's sit together for a moment or two. Out, out beyond our ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When we lay down in that grass, even our ideas of you and me fade away. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.